you can't go back in time and fix any of this. They have annual limits. You can always get to a point to where your income gets large enough and then you just start filling that brokerage account up all at once. But you can't go back in time and say, you know what, in 2019, I didn't quite max out my 401k or my IRA. Let me do that now. Welcome to The Fi Show, where you'll get a behind-the-scenes look into financial independence. Here's your host, Cody and Justin. Hello, and welcome back to another episode of The Fi Show, where today, Justin and I are going to go through the financial independence flowchart. Basically, what buckets you should be putting your money in, in what order, based on a whole variety of different decisions. But before we get into that, let me check in with Justin. What is going on today, man? Well, this past weekend, Cody, we were stuck around in Austin again because I'm going to be spending the next two weeks kind of on the road between Mississippi and then down at FinCon with you and a lot of the, the internet friends that I've made over the years. So like I said, this past weekend, we were staying around local. We went out Saturday night, watched a, a band that we've got a friend who's got like a family member in the band, but they actually are. They're pretty solid. So we went out Saturday night, did that. But the rest of the weekend was really kind of doing some more projects. Um, I've been doing a lot of that lately. I probably need to post some pictures maybe in like our Facebook group page of some of the things I've been doing. But the next project up on the list is we're going to do like an accent wall that's going to have these vertical slats, like these little kind of skinny wooden slats that go left to right across the back wall. I think it's going to give it like a little bit more of a premium feel to the room as we continue to try to make small changes that we want to get all set up before we start Airbnb the house out. And I know I'm the world's slowest ever to turn a property into a, an Airbnb, but it's just it's just kind of one of those things like managing all the, the full-time day-to-day stuff and trying to get it just right. It's because it's also our home. It's not just a rental property. So we're we're trying to make it exactly how we want it as well as make it so some folks will, will enjoy it. But that was pretty much our weekend. How about you, Cody? We'll keep on chipping away. I know I think last episode we mentioned the October deadline. Sounds like you're still on track. Sounds like, and I've been keeping up with you on social media. You have definitely been just tearing through the projects and Leslie as well seems to be pretty impressed with all the stuff you're doing. For me, I actually went to the Kenny Chesney concert at Gillette, and it was completely packed. So many people there. It was awesome. They had Old Dominion opening for them, and then Dan and Shay, and then Kenny went on for, he must have been on there for like two or two and a half hours. I was actually really surprised he just kept on going, but he's a Boston dude, and yeah, he just absolutely ripped it up, and we had an awesome time. And then it's been, again, been really blessed with good weather up in the Northeast here and trying to just enjoy those last days of summer, hanging out by the lake, going out in the boat, swimming all that good stuff. I'm excited for today's episode because it's one of those, I think, kind of evergreen foundational type episodes where you can always reference back to this episode when you're kind of in that decision paralysis around what to do with the next bucket of money. Uh, Cody, I know when you asked me like, hey, let's do a let's do an episode on this, get a lot of questions about at what points you should start doing different things with your money. I immediately in my head thought about this flow chart that I'd found on Reddit one time. And it really does a great job of kind of stepping you through those things and it breaks down some of that nuance around the questions you should be asking yourself. So if you ever want to refer back to this episode, because again, I do think it's something that everyone can use and you'll be wanting to use at different points in your journey. You'll be interested in kind of different parts of this flow chart. You can find all the information we want to talk about over at thefiveshow.com slash flow. That's thefiveshow.com slash F-L-O-W. Let's jump in. All right, well, let's kick this thing off. So you guys will definitely have access to this flowchart. And first of all, I got to give a shout out to the two guys who put this together. So it says the flowchart was created by Beached89, that's his Reddit username, 
and the post itself was created by Atlas Void. So whoever you people are out there, just got to give you a shout out because this is like one of the most detailed flowcharts I've seen when it comes to decision trees around spending money, investing money, just anything to do with your money. And Justin turned me on to this. He's like, dude, I have this amazing flowchart that I've seen before. So like you said, let's jump in. So the first one, and you're probably more of an expert in this category because you have one of the most granular budgeting spreadsheets I've ever seen in my entire life. And also, you guys can get that for free at the fiveshow.com slash spreadsheet. It's basically a blank template you can use. Okay, but step zero in this phases, there's six total phases here, is budget and reduce expenses, set realistic goals. So I guess we could probably speak from personal experience, Justin. I know there's a bunch of different things in this flowchart that we're looking at right now, but how do you think about this step zero? Yeah, to me, the simplest way to do it before you even start trying to set goals, like it mentioned, setting realistic goals, is to just take, I'd say it like three months, I mean, at least one month, I mean, you'd have to, but I would say three months of just really meticulously tracking every dollar that's going out. Now, I recommend trying to do all your spending in some kind of digital format, whether that be a debit card or credit card, depending on your comfort level and, you know, whether or not you have kind of any of those like control issue situations where you don't feel comfortable with a credit card debit card does the same thing from this perspective. It just makes things a lot easier to track, but go to one place, scan down the list, type it out, put it into your different categories, like the spreadsheet that I use. So that would be my first step is just to gather the data because that's, I think the biggest misstep we see a lot of people make is that they're trying to make decisions. They're trying to just look at their income and say, well, if I spent 200 on this and 300 on this, that leaves me enough to save. But that may not be realistic. And so just get a couple months. Also, try not to fall into the mental trap of like really overanalyzing these expenses that are non-typical. You know, we, we always give ourselves an excuse. It's like, well, yeah, but I'm not going to wear a pair of shoes every month or I'm not going to do this every month. That's true. But from my experience, when you look over a larger period of time, it really averages out pretty evenly. Like there's going to be something random every month. And once you look across three months, you're going to have a pretty solid average for for building that budget. And that's a good springboard where you can start to make those goals off of. Yeah, completely agree. I think the first step is always tracking because it's impossible to improve anything if you don't know where your money's going, if you don't know what you're putting in your body, if you're like trying to go on a diet. So first step is tracking. I just want to, at least for the people who aren't going to click and check out this flowchart, just mention some of the things under the create budget category, the step zero in this flowchart. So it has pay rent slash mortgage, buy food slash groceries, pay essential items, which is like your utilities, pay income earning expenses. So whether that's like transportation to and from work, maybe an internet, phone, Wi-Fi, pay your healthcare expenses. So health insurance, whether that's through yourself or your employer sponsored plan, make minimum payments on all debts and loans. So that's like student loans, credit cards, etc. And I guess, Justin, another important one that I don't have on here is that miscellaneous category that we always, always underguess ourselves on. So those are kind of just the big categories. I think we probably don't have to go through each one of these right now, Justin, because we've We've hammered this home in many episodes previously. So definitely go check out some of our previous episodes where we talk about expenses, reducing costs. Like if you do want to get creative, that is a great way where, you know, as we work through this decision tree, the more money you have, the more discretionary money you have to, you know, whether that's invest or pay down debt or do other things, that's when it starts to get fun because then it's not just like, okay, I'm at step zero. I'm living paycheck to paycheck. Now I don't even have any money to do step one, two, three, four, five, six. So I think, Justin, unless you have anything to add, that's a pretty good overview of what step zero is looking like. Again, it's create a budget, reduce expenses, and set realistic goals. Next one here is to build an emergency fund. So it's an insane stat, Justin. I don't know if maybe you know it off the top of your head better than I do. It's like 
50 or 60% of Americans can't produce $1,000 like in cash if an emergency arises. Again, I don't know if, if you know that stat, but it's kind of baffling. Yeah, I mean, I've definitely heard that stat before and it's, I believe it's well over 50% and the dollar value is not super high on the number that you're trying to come up with. I think this step is one that everyone should definitely do. And it's kind of different depending on where you are in your journey. Like if you have a high amount of income, then you can actually handle having less cash available because you do have things like credit cards and you don't have a lot of other debt maybe. And then like, okay, you know, you can pay that credit card off easy. But when you're just getting started off, like I've always liked the the three months of expenses. And then if you are someone who works more like freelance, like contract-based, I personally think you should maybe even push that a little further. Again, once you get a good foundation under you and a good financial foundation under you, you can use things like credit cards to make those short-term payments so that knowing that you've got income coming in so that that way you can invest more of it. But when you're getting started, I think it's good to, to just have that cash. Understanding that that's a depreciating asset with inflation but it's better than getting yourself into a bind, missing payments on essential things where you have credit issues or finding yourself in these like high interest loans. Yeah. Something I really like about this flowchart is it says pay any non-essential bills in full. And this is kind of going back to what you were just saying about the freelancer. If you have an awesome month, like if you maybe you made a bunch of money with side hustles or even you got a bonus at your job, pay off your cable bill, pay off your internet, pay off your phone for the year. And then if you do have down months in the future or you have other miscellaneous expenses come up, now those are already taken care of. So you don't get hit with that, whatever the bill might be for whatever amount it might be, because you already took care of it in this kind of step one where you're building up that emergency fund. So I really like that this flowchart added that. I thought that's a smart thing to do because the lower you can get your monthly fixed expenses. And again, this is something I've just said this a million times, but the lower you can set that baseline, you just have so much more flexibility with your budget and what you can do with the rest of that money there. And just out of curiosity, I know in this flowchart, it says use a savings or checking account. Where do you typically keep your emergency fund, Justin? Yeah, I actually do just keep mine in my normal checking account. I mean, I know I could do that next level of optimization and open up an account that pays percent and a half or whatever the interest rates are these days. So I probably am leaving a little money on the table, but I just don't keep a ton of cash. And um, there is some value to me to being able to go down the street and get like hard cash to buy something like that day if I need to, because you know, I'm someone who likes to do a lot of projects and different things. And sometimes something pops up on like Facebook marketplace where cash has to be the currency and I can go grab it right away. So, so I do use chase and that's where I keep my emergency fund. Well, I didn't think we were going to have the same little tell all here, but I also use my checking account as an emergency fund. Um, I might be giving up. I know like maybe ally and some of those other online banks are paying like 1.75%, but it's just not worth it. And the amount that I'm keeping in this account, And actually, this is something that I've seen a lot of people talk about in the personal finance space. And it kind of irks me sometimes because people be like, you know, keep adding money to your savings account, keep adding money to your savings account. And it's almost like to no end. Like, I think it's really responsible to have, again, three to six months of money tucked away, especially if you're a freelancer or you have irregular income or you're just starting your personal finance journey. But if you have like two, three, four, 10 years of expenses in a savings account rather than investing that money. That is not a good use of that account. So I see too many people that are like, yeah, transfer everything to a high yield savings account. And no, you just need enough to cover your expenses. You need an emergency fund. It's probably a little more optimal than Justin and myself keeping it in a checking account. But you know, if it's a $5,000 sum and you're getting 0.1% in the checking versus (laughs) 1.5% in the savings, like it's, you know, it's a factor of a couple dozens of dollars over the entire year. It's really not, really not anything groundbreaking. So I guess I'll get off my tangent there. (laughs) 
Yeah. And as far as like continuing to add to a savings account, you know, it'd be like at what point there's no rule based around that. There's no even like you haven't created a plan to me. Like we always talk about you create a plan, you follow it, you don't let emotions get in the way, all that sort of stuff. Like do put some thought into what you think your emergency fund should be, but then that's your emergency fund and it has a finite number and it doesn't go up every month. Now you could argue like, should you increase your emergency fund total by that year's inflation rate? Sure. That's totally fine, but it still has an end goal in mind. It's not just this never ending bucket. Yeah. All right. Well, step two is employer sponsored matching funds. And I guess this is going to differ, especially people in our situations, Justin, I don't have an employer currently I'm my own employer, although we can definitely get into some of the nuances there, but having a 401k match is like a superpower or 403b or whatever your program might be. In the flowchart here, does your employer offer a retirement account with an employer match? If the answer is yes, contribute the amount needed to get the full employer match, but nothing above that amount. And then if no, we're going to get into that in a second, which is step three. But Justin, I think you have the same mentality. Like when you're, when you've been coaching people in the past, when you're just talking to someone who's like, okay, you know, I have an extra $5,000 and my employer is going to match up to $5,000, but you know, I might want to buy real estate in two years, or I might want to do this. I might want to do that. I think I know what you tell that person, but yeah, I love the way this flowchart has it. And it's probably our biggest disagreement with something like uh, the Dave Ramsey world is, yeah, you take that match first. It is a guaranteed 100% return. I don't know of any other asset class or thing or whatever that you could put money into where it's like every dollar you put in, it just doubles them automatically. So our company matches $9,000 a year. You better believe I'm going to get all that $9,000 before I think about anything else. Like if there was an unlimited pot of matching money, of course, that's where your money would go. So if we think abstractly like that, it's very obvious. But then for some reason, when we say like, oh, it's got this certain amount of match, then we start running these other numbers and thoughts around what we could do with the money. But yeah, I love that we haven't talked about paying down debt faster yet. We haven't gotten there yet because we're still at the retirement match, which is what you should hit first. So I totally agree with this. Take that match. Also, I would say is like a this is kind of taken to the next level of, of looking into it. But a lot of companies have an annual match, but then they also may have a quarterly max match. And even if you exceed that, they may make it up in the end. But just think about that when you're setting up your automatic contributions. Like if you're afraid that maybe you're going to leave the company in November then you don't want to max out your 401k maybe in March because then you would have to be there in January to get that makeup, that true up kind of amount. Is That's a potential thing that could happen. So maybe try to plan it out where you know you're getting your quarterly max. That's just a little like fine print thing to watch out for that for those that have a company match to look into what their quarterly max is. And I want to speak directly to the two groups of people who I hear the biggest backlash on this from, because I actually just recorded a video pretty recently on this. And so the two camps, one is real estate people. And they're like, you know, 401ks are scams. Like I'm not putting money in my 401k. I'm just going to, you know, put a down payment on a property. Fine. But like Justin said, no property is 100% return. The money that you put into your 401k that is matched by your employer is 100%. Like it's, you know, there's no crazy math here. It's just, they're going to match whatever you put in. Like no fancy tax loopholes. Don't have to find the perfect property. Like it's just a hundred percent. So please, even if you, you know, have to pick up a side hustle or do some other creative things to maybe get that money back. If you were like planning to use it for a down payment, or maybe you even get like a private money loan, hard money loan. There's so many other ways to do it, but just not taking advantage of that 100% employer matches something that you're probably going to regret later on down the road. The other camp is the people that are saying, 
I can't get money out of my 401k until I'm 59 and a half. Like, what's the point of putting money in there if I'm never going to be able to touch it? You know, these are people in their 20s or 30s. I want that money in you know a couple of years. I want that money in a decade. I don't want to have to wait 30 years. There are creative ways to get money out of a 401k. You can use you know, rollovers into traditional IRAs, check out mega backdoor Roths. There's actually quite a few creative solutions. And there's also things called like the 72T, where you're taking out like the same amount every year. And you can actually start that before you're 59 and a half. Just, you know, this isn't an, an entire episode on getting money out of your 401k and, you know, convincing people to contribute to their employer match. But just Google like creative ways to get money out of your 401k. Our friend Brandon, the mad scientist has a fantastic post on this. And I think just things are not as black and white as people make them out to be. But long story short, get the match. It's 100%. End of story. Also, keep in mind that this, like with all 401k topics, it's not something you can just wake up in 10 years and go back and change, right? You have to do it in that given year. You don't get to make up that, even if whether it's employer match or whether it's like your overall amounts. And if you're thinking to yourself, well, maybe I want this money in five years. Well, just think to yourself, well, in five years, if you're doing that now and you're getting that match, that's less money that you need to hold back to be putting in retirement in five years. And so that your just income that you would have anyway could be used, like you could be using more of your income for whatever this thing is that you imagine you'll need in five years. And you could cut back on what you're putting into retirement. And now not only did you get that money for free, but it also has been in there longer. So it's had more time to compound. Amen. All right. On to step three. I am a fan of those two people who made this chart because they are in agreement with us. Step two, employer matching funds. And step three is pay down high slash moderate interest debts. So here in the flow chart, it says, do you have high interest debt? And they say 10% or more. And then whatever works best for you, there's a debt avalanche method where basically you're looking at the highest percent. So if you have like a credit card, it's 25%. Pay that down first, then hit maybe the 7% student loans and then hit like the 5% car loan and go in that order. There's also the debt snowball, which is you hit the smallest amount. So you kind of get that mental win. Then you go on to the next biggest debt and the next biggest, so on and so forth. The debt avalanche is the better method mathematically, but sometimes, and you know, myself included, being able to hit and crush some small milestones along the way can keep you motivated. So if you are someone who wants those small wins, those daily wins, maybe not daily, but weekly, monthly, whatever cadence you're paying off your debts in, that might be the way for you to go. And thinking about kind of like financial versus psychological, there's another thing in here that, you know, it talks about at this point, increasing your emergency fund to three to six months, because earlier on their chart, it actually said one month. That's a thing where, again, it's kind of that financial versus psychological, like, yeah, that might be a little bit more optimal if you started doing some of the other things before you got up to three to six months of living expenses. I would say that for most people having that emergency fund first, like the full three to six months before you get into this part of the flow chart is worth enough psychological benefit to just go ahead and knock that out early without waiting until this point, like not just setting yourself up to only have that one month of emergency fund. We'll be right back after a quick word from one of our sponsors. Today's sponsor is one I use on a daily basis in my company, Gold City Ventures. That is the sound of a sale in your Shopify store. But did you know that Shopify now also powers in-person selling? Shopify POS is your command center for your retail store or small business. Accept payments, manage inventory, they have everything. Shopify brings together your in-person and online sales business into one source of truth, one dashboard, everything in one place. You know exactly what's going on. And now they have all these customization options. They have plug and play tools that you can integrate with Instagram or TikTok or wherever. You can take your payments by phone or by tablet. Shopify makes it easy. Plus, if you have any questions, their support team is there to help you. 
I know we have a lot of entrepreneurs in this audience and Shopify POS just breaks down that barrier to accepting payments with your business. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash show, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash show to take your retail business to the next level today. Shopify.com slash show. Now back to the show. Definitely agree. This is kind of, I mean, this is why it's a flow chart. It's based on your own decisions, based on what helps you sleep better at night. If we were all just mathematical robots making the most optimal decisions, it would probably look a lot different than if we were actual people, which we are. And we know Justin and I have talked at length and we're on the same side of this debate, but of the people who pay off a mortgage early. And I know Justin, you've used the example of like, would you, you know, would you invest $200,000 into something that's going to pay you 3% return over the next 20 years? No, you're going to invest in something that you're going to get a better return, but it helps you sleep at night, which is basically like paying off a mortgage mathematically. Okay, so knock out the high interest debt. So credit cards, anything over 10%, as it states here. And then they talk about moderate interest debt. So anything over 4-5% interest, excluding your mortgage, and then kind of just do the same thing. The debt snowball versus the debt avalanche. If this is debt that's not making you money, you know, via a mortgage, or maybe you're purchasing a small business, there's a lot of creative ways to make money with debt. But if this is just student loans, car payments, things like that, get that out of here. And then you can move on to investing. Or I mean, actually, I'm not sure how I feel about this, this one, Justin, like doing this first, just completely dogmatic. If you have like a say a 6% student loan payment, I don't know if I would advise someone to not contribute to a Roth or traditional at all. If they have, you know, say $20,000 at 6% student loans. I actually think I would tell them to invest. So I might disagree a little bit with the flowchart author here. I don't, I'm curious what your takes are. Yeah, that kind of line, that's somewhere around 5 6% is where I've always just told people it's kind of like that psychological part. Because again, you would think like mathematically, until you start crossing closer to that 8% line, it's not really black and white, which one would make more sense mathematically over the long term. Five, six percent, you're not leaving too much on the table by not investing because you are saving yourself that, you know, if it's six percent interest versus getting the maybe you're expecting to get eight percent returns, you're not leaving too much on the table. So that's something I think every person just kind of has to come up with their own line. I wouldn't have any heartburn over anyone doing anything sub eight percent to just paying it off slower investing. Yeah, I think we're going to probably get to a lot of these type of psychological versus mathematical decisions as we work through this chart because this is where it gets hairy. It's like, if it's 100% return, of course, I'm going to take that. If it's 25% debt, of course, I'm going to pay that down. But when it becomes like six, seven, eight, that area, it's it gets a lot more gray. So the next section here is step four, savings for retirement in an IRA and higher education expenses. Okay, so in this flowchart, evaluate the merits of a Roth versus traditional IRA in the context of your personal finance situation and max the yearly contributions accordingly. And then the next section here, are you expecting any large required purchases or personal investments in the future, like college, professional certifications, a car, a house? It doesn't list that here, but I'm guessing that's probably in the same bucket. And then save the amount needed for these expenses in a savings or checking account. Okay. First part, first one of these three bubbles here, Justin, evaluate the merits of a Roth versus traditional. So the first thing I would say here is to me, anyone who is like extremely dogmatic about one versus the other being the better choice. I would give a little pause to that because I don't think there's like one choice that is necessarily always the right choice for every single person, like all things. It's like personal finance. And so if you are one of those people who think there's no way the math doesn't make any sense to go one way or the other, do yourself a favor and take the pre-tax amount of income that you could put in there 
go 10 years into the future at a return rate that you think would be normal and then pull it out with the taxes you would think. Like just run that numbers in Excel and then do the exact same thing the other way where you're putting the money that's already had the taxes paid on and pull it out without having to pay the taxes on the back. If you can assume the same tax rates, like as far as tax brackets won't change over the future and you're going to be in the same tax bracket, those numbers are exactly the same. So that means that as a function of what they are, they would work out the same as far as the the return. So don't get into any kind of mental trap about, well, traditional, there's more money in there up front because I have to pay taxes on it. So it's going to snowball faster. Like that's mathematically not true. So the things you got to think about are, do you believe that you are going to be in a different tax bracket in the future? Do you believe the tax brackets are actually going to change in the future? Because that's another thing with Roth, right? You've paid taxes on it now. You don't know if the federal government is going to change what the tax rates are in the first place. I mean, they've changed over the last couple of years for certain people. So they actually, you know, they absolutely could change. And then thinking about what tax bracket do you think you will be in? Do you think that you're not making as much money now as you will in the future? Okay, well, maybe you're in a lower tax bracket now. Maybe it is better to pay your taxes now. Or do you are you someone who is maybe getting close to early retirement and thinks like, you know what, this is probably the worst tax bracket I'm ever going to be in. When I get ready to start pulling this out, I'm going to be in a super low tax bracket and I want this to be in traditional. It kind of depends, you know, and, and like you said, Cody, Roth gives you some extra flexibility. Does that mean something to you? Do you need that flexibility? And then as far as like Roth goes, you know, think about, do you make too much money to use it in the first place? And if you do, it's not that big a deal. You know, you just put money in traditional, automatically convert it to Roth. It seems weird but it's not like tax fraud or anything. And it's, it's like one button click on Vanguard. It's very easy. So those are kind of the things that go through my mind. It's understanding what your journey is, where you are today, where you project yourself to be in the future, what you think things are going to happen from a tax rate perspective, and then what kind of flexibility means to you. And then what options are actually available to you based on your earnings. Well, Justin, we might have a personal finance podcast with 200 plus episodes, but I actually made this mistake where I contributed to my Roth and then my accountant was like, Cody, you are over the income limit, which I didn't even like think about or know existed. I guess it's a good problem to have. 2021 is 140K. I have the numbers up here. And 2022 is 144,000. So if you make more than that, your MAGI, your, your modified adjusted gross income, then you are not eligible to contribute to a Roth. But just to talk a bit about the flexibility, I just want to flesh it out so people kind of understand where we're coming from. With a Roth, you can actually take out your contributions tax and penalty free. So let's say this year, 2022, I contributed $6,000 to my Roth IRA. And then later on down the year, I have a $4,000 random emergency expense that comes up. I don't have anything in my checking or savings. I don't have any credit cards. All I have is this Roth to fall back on. I can actually take that $4,000 that I needed for that emergency out of the Roth tax and penalty free. And then I have 60 days. So let's say, you know, I'm, I'm still working. So I'm, I have this income coming in. If I can return the money within 60 days, you're just like completely fine. You know, nothing really happens tax wise. You, it is reported, but you still get to, you know, utilize that entire contribution for that year, which is kind of cool. And it's a kind of cool thing that's specific to the Roth with a traditional, if you wanted to just like pull money out that you contributed for any kind of a, an expense or a down payment on a house or or whatever you might need it for, then you would actually be facing some penalties. So definitely a nuance, but it's something to consider. And flexibility is important to some people. So definitely keep that in mind when you're deciding whether you want the traditional or the Roth. And Cody, agree, like love the flexibility that, that Roth can provide. I will just say as a word of caution, if you're putting money in there thinking like, hey, but it's flexible and I can just get my money out. 
remember that you shouldn't be thinking about retirement accounts in these really small windows. Like if you've got something where you want the money in six months, you don't know what the stock market's going to do in six months. So you don't want to get into a habit of thinking about any account, whether it's a brokerage, retirement, any kind of account of thinking, hey, when I'm putting money in, I know I need money in six months. Like I know that I'm going to need this money, but I'm just going to go ahead and put it in there anyway, because it may not be as much money as it was when you put it in there. It, it could have lost 20% in six months. And, and then that could get yourself into a bind. So just keep in mind that this is from a viewpoint, your investment accounts are from a viewpoint of a long time horizon. Yeah, definitely a safety net. Absolute emergencies only. I I did not want people taking my quote out of context and thinking I'm condoning, you know, using a Roth like a checking account. That's absolutely not <laughs> what I want you to do. But, you know, in the worst financial pinch ever, again, in my scenario, I had nothing in checking or savings. I didn't have a credit card. Like I lost everything except magically my Roth IRA was still there and it <laughs> saved me. So please don't actually do that. But it's just it's nice to be able to fall back on it in the worst case scenario ever. OK, so next one is step five. Save more for retirement. So in this flowchart here, it's asking, do you save at least 15%? So that's kind of the proxy here. It's like, okay, save at least 15% in either a Roth versus traditional once you've made up your mind which account is better for you. And then it gets interesting based on your situation from there on out. So if the answer is yes, we're going to get to that in a second. That's step six. But if the answer is no, you're not currently saving at least 15% of your pre-tax income for retirement. Does your employer offer a 401k, 403b, or similar retirement plan into which you could save more money? The answer is yes. Increase your contributions until you have reached 15% in that tax advantage retirement plan. If the answer is no and you're self-employed, you can contribute to a solo 401k, a SEP IRA, a simple IRA until you reach that 15% goal as well. Is this something that you've talked about? I know you've done some coaching before. How do you typically bucket the money after? Let's say they maxed out their IRA and now they're looking for another place to put income. Is it typically their employer plan that's next? Yeah, well, like we mentioned earlier, you know, that the match that you're going to get from your 401k is, is kind of like first first, like it's even before the IRA. So theoretically, if you work for a company who's got a 401k and they're doing a match, like you've already started putting some money into your 401k. And then like, okay, you got your match if that is your situation. And then you're going to your IRA and now you're coming back to your 401k to get up to that 15% point. I do encourage people to save as much as possible in any tax advantaged account before they start getting too concerned with, with other forms of investing, like in a standard brokerage account or, or anything like that, because you can't go back in time and fix any of this. They have annual limits. You can always get to a point to where your income gets large enough and then you just start filling that brokerage account up all at once. But you can't go back in time and say, you know what, in 2019, I didn't quite max out my 401k or my IRA. Let me do that now. So that's the reason why I always go with that because they're tax advantaged. You, you get taxed either on the way in or the way out, not both. And any other type of investment, you're generally getting taxed in and out. And again, just want to address some of the people who are opposed to what you just said. The biggest camp that I see that is like, don't put any more money in your 401k over the match. So they're at least on board with the step one here, getting the employer match. But they're like, well, you can't access it until you're 59 and a half. Now I'm going to again say there is so many different articles. Our friend Brandon, the mad scientist has an awesome article on accessing those funds early. But if you're going to be putting the money in the market anyway, and I know we just talked about this, it's for the long term. Like you're not going to invest money in a brokerage account and then, you know, pull it all out in five years because you want to buy a house or pull it all out in five years because you need to pay for your child's education expenses. That is not why we're investing. We're investing for the long term because we want to live on that money. This is what, you know, financial independence, the nest egg method anyway, is all about. 
So to those people, I urge you just think with a longer time horizon in mind, because if again, if you're going to be putting that money into the stock market anyway, it makes a hell of a lot more sense to put it in a tax advantage plan like a 401k rather than paying, you know, the full taxes, you know, you're getting taxed on the income and you're getting hit with capital gains tax when you're selling that stocks. If it's just sitting in a broker's account, there's zero tax advantage on either side. So again, think with the long term in mind. Yeah. And I mean, if you're someone who is like a real estate guru or someone else who could maybe figure out a way to make your money work a little better than going directly into your 401k, like that's awesome. But you're also not the normal person. Like most people don't have that advantage. Most people don't have such confidence around knowing that they can pull the trigger on any deal that, that, that meets their criteria and that they're going to make more money than the savings that they're going to get from the tax advantages as well as like the market returns and all that sort of thing. And hopefully we want to get people to a place where they're doing both. It's not like an either or like, oh, you can't take some money and put aside to do that real estate deal and save for the stock market. Like you want to have kind of a balanced portfolio where you got a little bit of both and uh, you want to get to a place where financially you have enough income to do a little bit of both. All right. Final step in this flow chart, step six, save for other goals and advanced methods. So the first thing it mentions here is an HSA. And a lot of people are like, a health savings account. What are you guys talking about? How is that an investment vehicle of any type? Why is it step six? How is that an advanced investing strategy? Well, I just talked about how a brokerage account has zero tax advantages. A 401k does have some tax advantages. An HSA is actually a triple threat tax advantage account. So the money you put in an HSA is pre-tax. It grows tax-free and you can actually invest in HSA into things like index funds. So it's not just like a you know a savings account with 0.5 or 1% interest. It's actually growing year over year. And then when you use that money in the HSA for medical expenses, it's also tax-free. Or if you don't end up using all the money that's in your HSA, you can actually use it for non-medical expenses when you become, which I think is 65. Someone might have to fact check me on that, but I think it's 65. So it's a triple threat tax advantage vehicle. And although you can't pile a bunch of money into an HSA, the contribution limit for 2022 is 3650 for an individual. It's a great place. And again, with all the tax advantages that it comes with, it's a great place to source some extra money after you've already gone through step one through five. So I am totally on board with this HSA recommendation. Yeah. And another little hack that sometimes people forget about is that you don't have to apply those HSA funds towards medical expenses when they occur. Like you can save those receipts and do that in the future. So that way you let those investments compound longer before you before you touch them. So you can always wait till way, way out in the future and say, now I want to start reimbursing myself for some of those medical expenses. Also, don't think about this as just like, I can only use it if I have like an ankle injury and I never get injured. Well, you can use it for like sunscreen and all kinds of random stuff. Like it's, I think even Amazon has uh, leaned into making it a lot easier to utilize your HSA. All right. So that's HSAs. Next thing on here is any future expenses for children or other loved ones that you might need to take care of. So things like a 529 plan, maybe you have a parent that's going to need help and you know they're going into assisted living and you have to bake that into your budget. Everyone's situation is completely different, but just talk about the children thing for a second. I am not a huge fan of 529 plans and I'm just going to put that out there. I might have some people coming at me for it, but I think there's a lot better ways to do it. Like I've seen people investing in a Roth IRA for a child and putting the child's earned money or just like getting creative with that. I've also seen people like purchase an investment property and then just like selling it off. And you know, the equity they built over X number of years has been able to pay for the child's college. I just don't like the we're going to, and we've used this word a bunch already. I don't like how limiting it is. I like having flexibility with what I can do with those funds. Cause with a 529, 
it has to be for education. So it doesn't have to be for your child. You could gift it to your niece or nephew or even for yourself, but it does have to be an education expense. So it, it is kind of limiting. So if you have like a couple hundred thousand dollars in there, all of a sudden your kid grows up and doesn't want to go to college and they want to pursue entrepreneurship or a trade, all of a sudden you're going to have to find a use for that money. So I'm just not a huge fan of 529. I think there are some more creative options out there. Yeah, I think a 529 is such a commonly used thing and opening up an IRA for a, a kid is such an uncommon thing. And I don't understand why we don't kind of flip that on its head a little bit. Like opening up an IRA for a child and putting income in there, it's getting to compound for so long. And most likely they're going to be in like a no, like they're going to pay any income taxes anyway. They're going to be in such a low amount kind of bracket that it makes a lot of sense from a tax perspective. And then that flexibility, like you mentioned, Cody, you could use it for absolutely anything. I mean, not only, and a lot of times people only think about what if, you know, the kid decides not to go to college. That's not the only time. What if the kid decides to go to college, but they get a lot of really good scholarships. They just may not need that money to go to school, even if they do want to go to school. Like, even if you're super confident, like I know this kid is going to go to college or like I'm going to try to force them to go to college. But like they still may not need that money. And obviously this whole episode wasn't on saving for your kid's college, but just do some research because there's there's so many different creative ways out there. And then this is kind of the last decision tree in this flow chart here. It says at this point, you kind of have some options on how you want to proceed depending on your goals and how you want your money to work for you. Do you want to retire early or do you have more immediate goals like home purchase or maybe some other short-term goals? If you do have immediate goals like that, and I kind of like how this is at the end, I think I mistakenly earlier said home purchase as an example, but it seems like home purchase is after all of these other steps, steps one through five, which I kind of like forcing people to you know put money into these retirement accounts and let it grow for a long, long time. Because oftentimes I see people almost talk themselves out of investing because they talk about this final step so, so much. I'm talking about some of my friends specifically they're like, I'm not going to put any money in an IRA or a 401k or a brokerage account because I'm going to buy a house in four years. It's like, well, you know, if you made that decision in 2018 and now you're looking back, you're like, man, I missed out on like 50 plus percent returns. I mean, the stock market has been wild over the past couple of years. So I actually really like that this is at the end here. It's saying use savings for goals sooner than three to five years. So that's just, you know, high yield savings account or conservative mix of stocks and bonds for goals more than three to five years away, because you have a much lower chance of having an extended bear market. I know Justin, we covered this in a previous episode, the average bear market is 36 months to get back to its previous point. So you're pretty safe, you know, not 100% safe, but you're pretty safe if you're looking at a three to five year goal or more, and you're putting that money into a conservative mix of stocks and bonds. And then it's saying you want to retire early, just like basically plow as much money as you possibly can into all of your tax advantage accounts, start investing in some other creative things. Once you've done all of that, like maybe you now you have money for real estate or syndications or angel investing or whatever else you might want to do with that leftover cash. And just to give a little credit to the flow chart, cause I kind of was misreading it a little bit in the moment earlier too, is earlier when we were talking about, you know, some of those expenses, it was talking, it was going to talk about required things, like things, you know, you've got to have, and now we're talking about a house, which some people may think, you know what, with my plan, it is a requirement, but I think we can all understand that it is no technical requirement for you to own your house. So I think that clears up one thing. And as far as the saving for early retirement, that is a huge, vast window. You can go really deep into that. You can push really hard. You can take it a little slower. The thing I would always encourage people, because there is no answer to this question, but is to just make sure when you're making financial decisions you're thinking about the implications. And then once you know those implications, you make the decision that makes sense to you, but just make sure you're thinking about it. Like if 
I buy this? What does that mean to me in 20 years? What is the what did I just do to myself? How far did I set myself back? If I don't buy that and invest it, how much faster can I retire? And then you can ask yourself, is that worth me not buying it? And if the answer is yes, then don't buy it. But be informed. Like you don't have to say, I've got to save 80%. But if you're saving 30 and you want to save 45 and you're thinking about buying something that would throw you off that, like just ask yourself, is buying this worth me working another six months? And if yeah, then okay, that's fine. I don't know why this made me think of this, but I just want to get this off my chest because this is another excuse that I hear people say why they aren't investing. I think people for some reason just think they need so much more money than they do for a home purchase. And I know this is kind of the big one here at the very bottom, you know, using that money for non-required purchases. But people, you know, people like owning their own homes, which is totally fine. And I want, you know, everyone listening to have a beautiful home. But with programs, I know Justin, I mean, you're in a crazy situation where you actually got paid to buy your home with a VA loan. I mean, there's just a lot of creative options out there. Like VA loan is not going to be available to everyone, only those who have served in the armed forces in the US at least. But like an FHA loan is 3.5% down. I mean, for a $300,000 house, which in a lot of states will get you a pretty decent house, maybe you know, excluding California, you're looking at like 15 to 20 grand all in saved up, which, you know, if you have a high paying job, if you're already kind of doing the right things for steps one through five here, that's probably not super far fetched for you to save up. And especially if you're increasing your income year over year, whether that's through raises or bonuses, and then you can kind of have this little pool on the side. But some people recently have just said to me, they seem to be under the impression that the more you can put down on a house, like the better it is. So like, if you have 50,000 saved up, and you, all you need is you know $20,000 in this example to buy a $300,000 house, they're like, no, I'm actually going to put all 50 down because my parents told me that having a big down payment is the best thing you can possibly do, which going back to the conversation we're having today, like it's just not the best use of your money. I mean, if you can put 20% down, that will save you PMI, private mortgage insurance. But other than that, I mean, there's not any real reason to go and outlay that much more cash just to have a big down payment on a house. I know this is a super side tangent, but it's something that a few people have brought up to me recently. And like, I really would love people to take action on this flowchart. I think it's really well thought out and put together. Obviously, Justin, you and I have our own opinions on some of this stuff. And like we add in our own nuance and what we do in our own situations. But don't let these big expenses, these three to five year out expenses stop you from contributing to any retirement accounts or saving for your future at all. Because I think it's so important what you said earlier, Justin, is like you can't go back and say, hey, you know what? I'm going to go max out my 2019 IRA and 401k. I didn't do it that year. I didn't contribute at all. But now that I'm making good money, I think I'm just going to go, you know, shove as much cash as I possibly can. It doesn't work like that. And so you only get that tax advantage for that one year. So think hard about those big future expenses. I know, Justin, like you mentioned, is it going to be worth it? If the answer is yes, then absolutely go for it. Buy it. Put money where you want to put money, where it helps you sleep at night. Most financial decisions are psychological, not mathematical, but you do want at least a little bit of math behind your decisions. Yeah, Cody, I'm a huge fan of that last piece about the of calculating like what it's going to cost you in the future, that opportunity cost. You could even think about it with this last thing we talked about with the big down payment, especially last year when interest rates were really low. Obviously, things change as interest rates change, but I was kind of shocked when I was looking at purchasing a house and thinking about down payments because at one time I wasn't going to get to use my VA loan. I was thinking, well, I guess I need to make sure I avoid PMI. And then I started doing the calculations and realized actually the opportunity cost of putting that money in was more than what the PMI would cost me. It would save me money to pay PMI. So just 
don't take any rules of thumb, whatever the financial advice is like, do your own math, like just pull out Excel and do very simple calculations. We're not talking, you don't need a finance degree. You don't need hours and hours of YouTube, just simply taking in an amount, compounding it, thinking about the tax implications, and then do the other scenario and just look at them side by side because math doesn't lie. Thank you again for taking the time to listen to another episode of The Fi Show. If you enjoyed this episode and want to support us, the best way to do that is to leave a review wherever you listen to podcasts, share this with a friend, and also don't forget, you can find 200 plus episodes and all the information you'd ever want to have about these episodes over at thefyshow.com. Also, don't forget to hit that subscribe button because that way every Wednesday you can have our latest episode delivered straight to your phone. Until next time. Hey, real quick before you go, I just want to remind you that I have made my personal like budget and net worth tracking spreadsheet available. The very same one that I use to track my net worth from $38,000 to over $1.2 million available for free on our website at thefyshow.com slash spreadsheet. So you can go download that today. That's thefyshow.com slash spreadsheet.